This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Northern Kentucky University political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by, well, not my conservative counterpart, but my counterpart slightly to the left, Professor of Law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Hey, Michael. Hey, Ken. How are you doing this uh, Groundhog Day morning? Well, I, I was already outside once and I saw my shadow. <laughs> That's better than Puxedani Phil, I, I understand. So I, I am really happy to be able to do this episode with you. As listeners know, they had sort of the we had sort of the conservative takeover last week, and now we get to hear from the left uh, on on this episode, and we have a, a lot of things to talk about. But before we get to that, I'd like to start off first by thanking. Natalie, Stephen, Robert, Andrew, and Aaron for becoming supporters of the show on Patreon over the last few weeks. We really do appreciate you guys. Thanks very much. And one other announcement. Um, I am really pleased to let everyone know that just, I think a few days ago, actually, Trey learned that he's being promoted to full professor at Oklahoma Christian University. Uh, that is a big deal, and it is surely well-deserved, so congratulations, Trey. Yeah, I'll add my voice to that. Congratulations, Trey. Now, uh, before we get to new stuff, I, we oftentimes like to start with uh, corrections, updates, that sort of thing from previous shows. And I listen to all the shows, and so this this, this comes from last week's show when you, know, you might recall that uh, Trey and – Trey and Jay were talking about uh, illegal immigration, and uh, Jay said regarding illegal border crossings, there are a lot of people who are just trafficking in fentanyl, and almost all the fentanyl in this country comes through the Mexican border. That's pretty well documented. Now, Jay was correct about that second thing. Uh, it's clear from various multiple sources that the vast majority of fentanyl in the U.S. gets in through our southern border. but there's important context here. Almost all of the seizures of fentanyl happen at legal ports of entry. And I think this is important because it suggests a problem not with legal border crossings, but with contraband checks at legal crossings. And that's a very different issue. And when you think about it, it makes sense because it's a lot easier to smuggle a significant amount of really anything into the U.S. if you can hide it in a vehicle that's legally coming across the border as opposed to, I don't know, somehow pack muling it on the backs of people crossing illegally. And so I wanted to make that uh, ice clarification. And, and another point I think that's worth mentioning concerns the percentage of people coming into the U.S. illegally who are carrying fentanyl. In that episode, Jay suggested it was maybe around two and a half percent, and Trey was, I guess, willing to agree to that for the sake of argument. But I was curious about it, and so I, I did some checking. And in fact, only around 0.02 percent of people apprehended by the Border Patrol for crossing illegally possessed fentanyl. And so I guess my point is, is I'm not I'm certainly not saying that fentanyl is not a serious problem in the U.S. Of course it is. But it's much more of a problem with trying to figure out how to screen effectively and efficiently for it without 
essentially shutting down or slowing our trade with Mexico through to a crawl. And that's a serious problem because the U.S. imports more from Mexico than any country other than China, almost uh, half a trillion dollars in 2022. So it's a real problem. It's a serious problem. But I would argue it's not a problem that's uh, really about illegal immigration. So, Ken, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that, but I just like to I wanted to provide that context before we uh, before we moved on. No, I, I, I appreciate what you said. I hadn't looked up any of those numbers, but certainly everything you said sounds right to me. And I guess this is kind of a good segue in a way, because our top story actually focuses on the southern border and immigration. Uh, this week, Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee approved articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It was an 18 to 15 party line vote, and it, now it moves consideration of the articles to the full chamber. And Speaker Mike Johnson has said he will bring that to a vote as soon as possible. It looks like probably next. Next week, Mayorkas is, is accused of reckless abandonment of border security and immigration enforcement at the expense of the Constitution and the security of the United States. More specifically, he said to have violated the Secure Fence Act of 2006. This requires the secretary to take all actions necessary and appropriate to maintain operational control over the border. And in that, operational control is defined as prevention of all unlawful entries into the United States. Uh, yeah, an impossible standard. Now, in addition, Mayorkas is said to have violated the Immigration and Nationality Act provision that requires him to detain inadmissible aliens because under him, the DHS has engaged in that so-called catch and release thing of releasing aliens into the U.S. due to, well, insufficient detainment facilities, insufficient to say the least. Now, the second article of impeachment accuses him of placing Homeland Security personnel and American citizens at risk of exposure to COVID by refusing to take the necessary steps to prevent potentially contagious illegal aliens from entering the United States. And even if House Republicans approve these articles, it's certain to go nowhere in the Senate. And it's not even, I'd say at this point, entirely certain if either of these articles will end up being considered by the Senate, because the case for uh, this being high crimes and misdemeanors, it is more than a little bit questionable. I know we're going to get to that. So, Ken, why don't we start with those legal arguments, I guess, right? The main charges here, that catch and release policy violates federal law and that Mayorkas has failed to maintain operational control of the border. What do you think about these claims? Yeah, well, um, yeah, of course, I agree with you that they're not high crimes and misdemeanors, although I would be a little more open to the idea, perhaps, than the way you phrased it, that um, it, it, I, I'm not certain that I agree that something actually has to be a crime in order to be impeachable. Now, I, I don't think these offenses are impeachable, and I'm sure that these offenses are not crimes. For instance, the, the argument in the in the first article of indictment that um, the, the, the so-called catch and release uh, policy is is inconsistent with federal law. Well, the, the federal law that they're arguing that it's inconsistent with is not a, a criminal law. It's a, it's an administrative law. So if, if you have an um, administrative agency that even if it were true that their ad administrative um, uh, enforcement policies are, are, are not uh, in accordance with the statutory law that governs them, um, that would be a civil violation of law. That wouldn't be a criminal violation of law. So it's it's it, it seems to me very hard to make any kind of argument that um, that there's a crime and the, the, the articles of impeachment don't uh, actually cite any criminal statutes. Um, but, uh, you know, this it has actually been argued in several of the impeachment trials of presidents, um, because in uh, in the uh, articles of impeachment that the House voted out against uh, President Nixon, uh, in the early 70s. And then again, um, in the uh, articles of impeachment against Donald Trump, um, th there were several impeachments where um, non-responsiveness to congressional subpoenas was listed as one of the articles of impeachment. Um, and I, I believe that's appropriate, um, even though that's not itself a crime. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't actually want to um, really strongly endorse the principle that um, something has to be a violation of the criminal code for it to be impeachable. Um, I think certain kinds of um, attempts to um, 
to to basically not not uh to undermine the rule of law or to undermine the, the role of other branches in our constitution um, could also be high crimes and misdemeanors, even if they're not technically crimes. After all, when the framers gave us that impeachment clause, there were no actual federal crimes. There was no federal criminal code yet, but they already had the idea that um, the constitution created a, a, a mechanism for impeachment. So th- I, I would say that, but on the, but I definitely would say, you know, coming around, on all important uh, parts of this to agreeing with what you just said, that no matter what standard you're using, you know, the standard of whether there's any technical crime alleged or the standard of whether the the secretary's uh, conduct uh, goes in any way beyond ordinary policy disputes that could be adjudicated in civil court. Um, you know, there, there's clearly nothing here for impeachment. I'm not sure they're going to even get a majority vote in the Republican House. They, they've they been losing Republican members. And they I think by now, Michael, what's the margin, like three or something like that? They can that? only afford to lose two votes. Yeah. Two votes. Yeah. They may not get this. Another, um, you know, one other legal aspect. I, I don't know if you want to respond to anything I just said, because I would also talk a little bit procedurally about the way things might go in the Senate. But I, I don't know if you want me to get into that now or if you want to um, if you want to respond to any of the things I said about the, the articles. Yeah, I, I think before we get to the, the Senate side of things, and another point I would make is that the, the claims in the articles are in many cases are just simply not accurate, as I understand it, as a matter of law. For instance, uh, the the secretary does have the authority to grant parole, which is that what what's been called catch and release. I don't like the term because I find it to be sort of a, a, a the dog whistle derogatory sort of thing. But that there's no limit that was placed on that by Congress. And you can argue that, well, if if you don't like if Congress doesn't like what the secretary is doing, well, then go ahead and pass some legislation that puts more constraints on it. In fact, that's that's what the Wall Street Journal's editorial board argued. They they said, hey, this is a policy dispute. It's not an impeachable offense. And if Congress wants to do something that changes this situation, well, they should put together and approve a package that does tighten those standards and does limit the discretion of the secretary. But absent that, this is a pointless exercise in political theater. And I, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, I hadn't even focused on that side of it. Um, but yeah, th- that there may not even be any violations of administrative law statutes, because I would really say it's almost irrelevant whether there are or aren't, because even if even if the secretary was not um, in, in full compliance with the administrative law statutes, none of those are criminal statutes and there's no court order against them. So I would say before something could become impeachable um, at a minimum, you know, someone would have to bring a lawsuit in a civil court saying that the the, the secretary's policies are uh, not consistent with the civil statutes that he's supposed to enforce. And a court would have to enter an order against him and he would have to violate a court order. And I think if it, if it got to that point, I think it could be impeachable. But, you know, just to, even even if there was a violation of a civil regulatory statute, I, I can't see how that could possibly be an impeachable offense before it's uh, adjudicated, because there's there's no allegation of crime and there's no allegation of violating a court order. Now, one thing that some people might point to is that, well, if you look at the Secure Fence Act, they do say that operational control of the border means prevention of all unlawful entries into the United States. And one could argue, well, as written, that has that that has not been the case. The secretary has failed to maintain operational control. But but to me, that's it. That, that's essentially pointless because no secretary has ever maintained operational control if you define it that way. And I wanted to get your your take on that. Yeah, I mean, actually, there's a Supreme Court case about that very issue, um, which does hold just what you said. Uh, so it, it's this case called Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. It's it's probably a case that's not well known to people who don't, don't follow administrative law. But the issue in, in Castle Rock versus Gonzalez, uh, which is a, a twenty, it's a twenty first century, early twenty first century case, so not not a very old case. Um, so Colorado had actually passed a statute that said um, if if a if a domestic violence victim gets a, a civil restraining order against the perpetrator in, in a civil court, that um, that uh, restraining order um, is a form of a property right. And it's it's a guarantee that the law enforcement has to enforce it. So under under Colorado law, there's this idea that there's certain uh, court orders, in this case, restraining orders that must be enforced. Law enforcement has no discretion not to enforce it. They have to enforce it. Um, And and it's even you know, I think the statute even denotes that a property right 
of the person who has the court order. So that's about, about one of the strongest kinds of laws that, that any legislature has ever passed that actually requires mandatory enforcement that's actually designed to take away all enforcement discretion, you know, which is which is not the norm. Like normally law enforcement has enforcement discretion and isn't expected to enforce it against every instance. You see people driving faster than, uh, you know, 55 on the highways and nobody expects that every single one of them has to be ticketed. Um, but Colorado tried to take away that law enforcement discretion. And of course, you know, what happened next was you have a woman who had a civil restraining order uh, against her uh, ex-husband. Um, the ex-husband comes by her house one day, uh, kidnaps the kids. Um, she calls the, the police and says, look, I, I have one of these civil restraining orders that must be enforced under Colorado law. You have no discretion not to enforce it. Go out and get my kids back. And the, the police blew her off and paid no attention to it and wouldn't enforce it. And uh, and the, the husband ended up killing the kids and himself in a big murder suicide, you know, after, you know, hours and hours of 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 the woman unsuccessfully trying to enforce a restraining order that she has a, a civil right under Colorado law to have enforced and there's no enforcement discretion not to enforce it. So she ends up suing the 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 her her town's uh police department Castle Rock Colorado and uh it goes up to the US Supreme Court. The um, the Colorado Supreme Court finds in her favor under Colorado law and and you know says she she had this right and there's liability here cuz they didn't um enforced in a situation where enforcement was mandatory. And and the U.S. Supreme Court in the Castle Rock case, by a large majority, that's actually a bipartisan majority, um, says uh, there cannot be a private right to have public law enforcement. That's just an impossibility. And in, in the nature of things, it's not um, it's it's just not possible for any unit of law enforcement to be 100 percent effective all the time. It, it's it's an unrealistic and impossible expectation that couldn't be complied with. And and there can't be any legal obligations, um, you know, for, for, to have law enforcement actually happen. Um, and, and, and I think that holding really squarely covers uh, the situation that you're talking about, that that, that the, the and, and, and the statutes that the secretary uh, enforces, you know, they don't they, they don't even ha- give anybody a private right to have him enforce. Uh, the way this statute in Colorado did. So the, the enforcement obligation isn't even as strong as the enforcement obligation uh, that was imposed on uh, uh, police officers by Colorado law in the Castle Rock case. But nonetheless, the Supreme Court has really squarely held that um, the, the, the statutes that tell law enforcement you, you've got mandatory enforcement um, those are essentially meaningless or hortatory. They, they, they're not actually enforceable. Interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Now, I, you know, I, I wanted to mention also that second article of impeachment, which in a way is kind of funny to me, not funny, uh, really funny, but at, uh, a party that in many cases, many members of uh, made the argument that COVID really wasn't that big of a deal and we were doing too much and so forth, accuses the secretary <laughs> of not. I, that to me, I, I think everyone understands this to be a, a, a political thing and that it's going to go nowhere. But you had some thoughts about what might happen if uh, if Johnson can keep the Republicans together at least on one of these articles of impeachment and it gets to the Senate. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I think the Senate has more procedural options than people might realize. Now, it, it might be that uh, Schumer and the Dems just decide to hold the impeachment trial because they think it'll, uh, you know, actually make the Republicans look worse. You know, when 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 Bill Clinton was impeached in 98, that probably helped the, the trial itself probably helped the Democrats more than it helped the Republicans. And so from a political standpoint, maybe Schumer would reach that same judgment and just ha- have the trial. Uh, it's absolute certainty that um, uh, um, that, that Mayorkas would be uh, acquitted um, as as was the you know, there's only one other cabinet secretary in history ever impeached. It was Secretary of Defense William Belknap in uh, 1876. And, uh, and and he was he was also acquitted. Um, and every president that's been impeached has been acquitted. Uh, you know, there's really no doubt. But but the other procedural option that Schumer would have and the Supreme Court has endorsed this already um, is Schumer could just call for a vote without having a trial. Um, and and that um, uh, there was a case in 1993 called uh, United States versus Nixon. And remarkably, the Nixon was yeah. not Richard Nixon. <laughs> it was a different Nixon, uh, Judge, Judge Walter Nixon. Um, but when, when Judge Walter Nixon was uh, impeached as a sitting federal judge, the, the Senate decided not to bother holding a trial. And they they referred his case to a, a, a an ad hoc subcommittee. And the ad hoc subcommittee wrote a report um, recommending removal. 
And then the only thing they ever did on the floor of the Senate was, was you know, present that report and, and call for a vote. And they, they voted him out. And he took his case to the Supreme Court and, and said, uh, I had a right to be tried in the Senate and I never received a trial. And, and the court said um, that's a non-justiciable question, that the Senate gets to decide how to um, conduct impeachments. And no matter there's no right or wrong answer to it, whatever they do. Um, it's up to them. It's not up to the courts. The courts can't micromanage uh, uh, procedures for impeachment trials. And so I think there is a precedent there for for if Schumer wanted to, to just say, OK, we've received this referral from the House. Let's just take a vote on it and, and get it over with immediately. Um, I don't know which would be politically more advantageous uh, and whether it might be more politically advantageous, you know, to give give these, um, um, you know, the, the, the uh, House impeachment managers you know, enough rope to embarrass themselves in front of the general public. But I don't I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I I doubt that we'll get to that point. I'm going to predict that neither of those articles will be approved by the House, that they won't be able to keep uh, enough Republicans. At least I at least I hope that's what's going to happen. But we, we shall find out, I think, probably sometime sometime next week, certainly. And then kind of come back to that. What do you think, just hypothetically, if the articles of impeachment do get voted out, what, what do you think would be the wiser political move for the Dems? Would you think it'd be wiser to have a trial or do you think it'd be wiser to just take a vote on the articles of impeachment without well, having a trial? Well, I see your point, but I also think that that also gives Republicans more of an opportunity to highlight the very real problems at the border. Now, those problems, I think you can certainly argue, are not really the fault of Mayorkas. They're the fault of bad policy and a bunch of other things. But I don't know that Democrats really want that the issues at the border highlighted even more, given that there's such a political liability for Joe Biden, because it is such a, a bad situation that has not been controlled by the Biden administration. Yeah. So, so you're basically saying you think if they have the procedural path to scuttling the trial and just not yeah. having it, that that's the wiser and path. And getting it over with as soon as possible and trying to move on from that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think they could do it. I think they could just take a vote. I think they have to take a vote, but I don't right. think they have to have a trial. It'll be interesting to see what happens or if it happens in the first place. All right, well, let's move on to something uh, very different, but we'll stay with Congress. This week, the CEOs of Meta, TikTok, X, Discord, and Snap all testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee in their big tech and the online child exploitation crisis hearings. It was, uh, I think, right around four hours it clocked in at. Very contentious. Senators from both sides were taking shots to tech executives. Lindsey Graham said uh, they had blood on their hands. Josh Hawley called for an apology. Mar Mark Zuckerberg actually gave an apology. He turned around to the families of the people who'd uh, been victimized in some way from Meta's apps and said, I'm sorry for everything you've all been through. No one should go through the things you and that your families have suffered. And he said Meta was working to ensure that other people wouldn't have to go through what uh, their family members, their loved ones did. Now, committee chair Dick Durbin said Congress shared at least some of the blame uh, that Congress needed to look in the mirror, considering how its inaction on this issue has allowed what he termed to be the most profitable industry in the history of capitalism to operate without fear or liability for unsafe practices. Now, there's plenty of bipartisan outrage, but the big question I think to everyone is whether that's going to lead to any actual action. Because for years, there have been calls to, uh, in some way, amend Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, and that gives online service providers fairly broad immunity from legal liability based on the posts, the content that users put up there on those platforms. And in the past, a number of folks on the right have focused on what they would argue is censorship of right-wing voices on these platforms, whereas a lot of people on the left have said not enough is being done by the platforms to minimize harmful, misleading misinformation. But it seems like what both sides agree on is that more needs to be done to prevent harm to minors. And the problem, though, is that to date, there really hasn't been enough consensus on a legislative solution. Uh, Section 230 was intended to promote free speech, and I think a very real and legitimate concern is that if you weaken those liability uh, protections for user posts on the platforms, that could have a pretty 
serious chilling effect on online speech. So what do you think, Ken? I mean, do you see this as just sort of crowd-pleasing election year posturing by senators from both parties? Or do you think that there's a chance of anything substantive coming out of this, or even if there should be? Yeah, I don't think there's a chance of anything substantive coming out of this. I, I do think there should be, actually, but I don't think my ideas will prevail. And I think part part of the reason is that, um, and you averted to this already, that although um, there may be some bipartisan consensus that there are problems that need to be solved and that Section 230 uh, isn't the perfect solution, um, they really differ on what they agree the problems are that need to be solved. And so, you know, I think if I don't think there's actual bipartisan consensus on what what problems need to be solved. And for that reason, I, I don't think there will be any uh, legislative solution. Um, but I would say, you know, Section 230 itself, um, you, you said it was enacted to pr- protect free speech, but I think it was actually enacted with twin goals. Um, one of which was not to protect free speech, right? So the the, the context um, when 230 was enacted, uh, uh, I can tell the listeners, I don't know if you know about it either, but do you know about the CompuServe case and the Prodigy case that had both been decided right before Section 230 was enacted? Only vaguely. So please go ahead and uh, enlighten or remind yeah. me some combination yeah. thereof. Right. So so um, Section 230 was enacted as part of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 which was primarily not about the Internet. Most people weren't that aware of the Internet yet in 1996. And what Congress was really trying to do still after 12 years was pass a statute that would um, give us a transition to um, competition in the telephone sector. So it wasn't really an Internet statute. Um, but the, the federal district court in 1984 had broken up the old AT&T monopoly um, in an antitrust case. And uh, the court had itself been managing the transitions from monopoly telecom to, to, to competitive telecom um, for 12 years. And so the main focus of, of the 96 Act had nothing to do with the Internet. But but one thing that happened right during the debate um, about the 96 Telecom Act and that got it to mention the Internet just in Section 230, there's a handful of other sections that mention the Internet as well, but they're pretty all pretty scattered and haphazard, uh, is that there were two different court cases decided in New York, in New York state. Uh, well, one was in a federal court, one was in a state court, but both in New York and both under New York law. And um, the the issue was whether uh, internet service providers uh, were liable um, for harms that were caused when their, when their users put up um, uh, uh, illegal content, you know, tortious content, in, in, in these cases, defamatory content, but we could also be talking about other kinds of harms. And so, um, uh, and, and the two cases came out opposite each other. So there was a felt need for a, a legislative uh, fix. And so what, what happened was, um, do you, Mike, you're is old enough. I, you probably, do you remember CompuServe and Prodigy? Do you remember those two services? Oh, I, I, I do recall in the very early days. Yeah. Now you're, you're giving me flashbacks yeah. to <laughs> slow modem yeah. kind of yell yeah, that noise. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're in the days of dial up modems. There's no oh, broadband God. yet. Yeah. Um, and back in the days of dial up modems, you know, kind of paradoxically consumers were, you know, Maybe the, the the speed of the throughput wasn't nearly as good as today, but the the consumer choice uh, was much much greater than today. And uh, if you if you wanted to get on the internet, you know, typically you'd be in a situation where your your phone company you'd probably have a, a monopoly, uh, you know, AT and T or one of the regional bells that provided a dial tone to your house that you used to make all your calls. But you could use that dial tone to dial up to an internet service provider and you could choose whatever internet service provider you wanted and, 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 you know, dial them up at their phone number and stick your phone into a modem and get on the internet that way. So the, the different internet service providers that were competing for people's business um, had kind of different uh, marketing plans or business models. And uh, um, CompuServe was kind of a um, low cost, no frills type provider. Like if you, if you wanted to you know, pay a lower rate and you knew what you were doing yourself and didn't need a lot of handholding, uh, you, could, you could use CompuServe. Um, Prodigy was a more uh, full service the provider that was marketing itself as very family friendly. And, and Prodigy was actually you know, charging more per month than CompuServe, but, but telling consumers, um, you know, we, you know, we know there's a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of dangerous garbage out there on the Internet, and we um, have monitors who monitor stuff, and we, we've installed NetNanny software, and, and you can, if you use our service, 
you know, you'll, you'll, um, you, you can be guaranteed that you're not going to um, get an eyeful of, of material that you don't want to see, you know, while you're using our service to get on the internet. And so you had these two services with these two different marketing plans. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, users um, in, in uh, I think in both cases, it was in financial chat boards. Um, both, both, both services had episodes where libelous uh, content was aired and it um, inflicted harm on, on, on businesses. Um, and, uh, and there were lawsuits for defamation that followed. And in, in both cases, not only did the speakers get sued for defamation, but the, those two internet service providers both were pled into the suits as co-defendants. And uh, the way the cases came down, uh, CompuServe was found not to be liable for any of the defamatory content because they never said that they would monitor any content. Whereas Prodigy wow. was found to be liable for the defamatory content because they had both marketed themselves as a service that would monitor content and also, um, you know, did in fact monitor content, but just failed in this one case to catch this bad content. Um, and so they were, they were found to have had a, a higher duty to, to actually carry through on their promises successfully, which they failed at. Um, whereas CompuServe, which never made the promises, um, you know, was, was off the hook. Now, after those two cases came down that way and, 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 and reflected um, an even older legal distinction that goes back to just when there were books and magazines um, of the, the distinction between uh, publishers liability and distributors liability, that, that publishers are basically liable for the content of anything that they publish, um, whereas distributors like bookstores that sell books are not liable for the content of everything that's on their shelves, um, but they do become liable for it if they're put on actual notice that there's um, defamatory, unlawful content on their shelves. That was an old that was an old legal rule, and that gets applied here. But but the um, in the in these early internet days, um, there was a backlash against those cases, and and the the basic lobbying effort that came out of Silicon Valley that contributed to Section Two Hundred and Thirty getting enacted because this was a successful lobbying effort was. Um, so the Silicon Valley lobbyists say, well, look, with these two inconsistent court decisions that just came down, basically what, what any Internet service provider would have to take from that is you better never promise anyone that you're going to monitor any content and you better never try to monitor any content because you're creating an impossible standard of liability for yourself. And if that's the way every, um, every Internet service provider is going to have to respond to these two cases, um, then the internet's going to become a cesspool because nobody's going to try to monitor anything. And so we need a law that not only protects free speech on the internet, but that also protects internet service providers who imperfectly engage in censorship efforts, right? That, that if they try to actually do what, what Prodigy did to take down bad content, but that they're, but that they're just not perfect at it. Um, uh, and so some bad content slips through. Um, we, we don't we don't want them being sued for that because we don't want to discourage them from trying to do what they can to take down bad content. So that was part of the original impetus to um, enact 230. So so it wasn't purely about protecting free speech. It was actually about protecting uh, the ISP's ability to engage in censorship without um, holding themselves to a, a, such a high standard that they'd have to. Uh, be liable if they weren't perfect at engaging in censorship. So I think I think that all has to be understood as um, uh, kind of what what 230 was supposed to accomplish. And uh, uh, I, I, did you want to respond to that? No, I said that that's a that's a good point. Uh, uh, kind of encased in uh, some interesting early internet legal history. So I really appreciated yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to continue to to me that was, there's wisdom in that. And uh, um, I, I think that. Um, Therefore, you know, I, I basically like the way Section 230 uh, does work, but I think that, um, you know, that it would, uh, um, you know, it, it seems to me that maybe one improvement on it that I would see as an improvement, you know, not that I, not that I think this will get enacted, but I, I referred back to that older idea of um, publisher's liability and distributor's liability. So, uh, you know, if you think back to the world of books, you know, that, that um, you know, let's say that, that a publisher actually publishes a book that's defamatory. Um, well, that publisher has a duty to know that they, they shouldn't publish a book that's defamatory. They're supposed to read the book. They're supposed to figure out whether it's defamatory. And so they would be equally as liable as the author um, if a defamation lawsuit is brought. Um, but under the older version of distributors liability, the, the pre-Section 230 version, um, you know, a bookstore could carry any book and not have to read them all and figure out which ones are defamatory. 
But if somebody walked into that bookstore and said, look, you've got this book on your shelf and it is defamatory and I'm going to document that and I want you to take it off your shelf. Um, at that point, the the, the distributor's um, immunity um, would change. And instead of just being immune in a blanket kind of way because they had no duty to know what was defamatory, um, we'd now say, but if they actually know that someone thinks it's defamatory, then then they do have a, 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 a they get then a duty to investigate for themselves and to look at the book and figure out whether it is defamatory or not. And then they could be liable if they continue to stock it, even after they've been put on notice that it's a defamatory book. And I think a, 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 an innovation like that or, or, you know, just a tinkering with 230 like that, I think would be a, a good thing. I, I think it would be good to keep the ISPs with all their general immunity that they have. But I think, um, you know, the kind of takedown notice regime that already works, uh, it's already been implemented under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act for, for, for copyright violations. Um, I think it would be OK to um, have a similar regime for um, other, other kinds of unlawful content other than copyright violations, so long as the ISP is put on uh, actual notice and with a credible claim that where the claimant documents why, the, the, um, why, why they believe the, the content is illegal. You know, I, I think it wouldn't be bad to actually make the um, ISPs think a little bit about whether they want to continue to host that kind of material or not. Yeah, and certainly the, uh, the social media companies are almost all doing some version of that on their own to a greater or lesser extent and maybe making that a legal obligation. But I would argue also then you would there would still need to be some sort of acknowledgement that. That is not, this kind of goes back to the operational control of the border thing, right? I mean, the enforcement of this would have to be almost necessarily imperfect. And so they would need some sort of, I would think, protection for instances in which if there are millions of these requests flooding in all the time, uh, a few are going to slip through. So I think there would have to be some sort of a good faith effort sort of clause in there or, or contingency in there so they wouldn't be held liable for all that. Uh, what, what do you think? about that. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think an ordinary, you know, in, in the law, there's a lot of situations where the standard is negligence, right? So there, there could be situations where people are not negligent, but you still don't get a good outcome. You know, think of something like medical malpractice, right? That uh, doctors sometimes don't do anything wrong and they still have a bad outcome um, and they're not liable for that, right? The, the plaintiff is going to have to show that the bad outcome happened because the doctor didn't adhere to the ordinary standard of care. And I think that's really what you're talking about here. I would agree with it that 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 there there would there should have to be a showing that um, you know not only did a, a an ISP fail to take down unlawful content in the face of a takedown notice, um, but also that that failure was because of some negligent conduct that they committed. That it wasn't just um, you know one of those things where nobody can be perfect. Yeah, and and there are a number of pieces of legislation that have been proposed, not just things that might amend uh, 230, but one of the big ones, in fact, it was mentioned repeatedly in, in the hearings, was uh, the Kids Online Safety Act. And, and in fact, the CEOs of SNAP and X said that they supported uh, COSA, as it's called. And th this would do a, a number of things. It would uh, restrict the app's access to personal data for minors. It would require them to provide parental control, parental monitoring tools. It would prohibit certain types of advertising to be shown to minors, like uh, gambling, tobacco products, that sort of things, uh, various other things. Though, again, the devil's in the details here because there's language about harms to minors. And one of the co-authors, one of the co-sponsors of this, uh, Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee, she said, well, to me, that would include critical race theory messaging and transgender identification information. And so I would expect that this would be the sort of thing that uh, that the apps would need to uh, watch and, and prevent uh, minors from seeing. And this is where it gets really, really difficult, which is why I understand the appeal of a of putting the putting the burden on the companies because i think the general idea and i think this is generally speaking more of a kind of an idea from the right is saying well if you just remove the legal legal protection uh and, and let the companies figure it out themselves that's the market figuring it out as opposed to us installing some kind of large and complex and loophole ridden regulatory scheme but i, I think both sides have both of these types of solutions have some real problems. And I would argue that 
None of them get to what I what I feel to be a big source of the problems with these apps, things like online bullying and that that advertising and other stuff doesn't get to the sort of thing that happens online in these apps that make lives of millions of kids, I would argue, uh, demonstrably poorer than they were before these apps existed. And I don't think there's a good answer to any of that. Yeah, I'm with you there. I mean, I'm I'm so glad that I got to grow up before there was <laughs> yeah. an internet. But, yeah. <laughs> I think the internet has been, you know, incredibly destructive to young people, um, but exactly more in the ways that, that you're talking about. Not not because there's, you know, content on there about uh, homosexuality or stuff like that, but because every kid has to live in a fishbowl where they're all looking at each other all the time and, and being mean to each other. And uh, um, I, I can't think of anything more horrific than that, really. And that, that's the world that kids today are living in. Uh, but I don't know that there's any legislative fix for, for, for that. Um, and uh, I, I think, the, you know, really the most the law is going to be able to do is try to come up with ways that um, certain narrow categories of speech, such as um, defamation or, or, you know, other kinds of intentionally false statements that, fraud, you know, frauds, different kinds of things that cause harms due to falsity. Um, that, that have been recognized as outside the protection of the First Amendment, um, that, that there's more accountability for people who promulgate that. But when, once you're getting into these areas of speech like bullying, which which by and large would probably fall within the protection of the First Amendment anyhow, then there's going to be a lot less that, um, that, that uh, uh, legislatures are really going to be able to effectively do about that. All right. Well, let's move on to something different. Uh, late last week, the state of Alabama performed the first nitrogen gas execution in the United States. They put the death convicted murderer Kenneth Smith. And it's this is the first new execution method in the U.S. since the introduction of lethal injection, which was over 40 years ago now. And it took around the whole process took around 22 minutes. And toward the end, Smith appeared to kind of writhe and pull against his restraints on the gurney for a, a few minutes in the end. And in his final statement before the gas was administered, Smith said, tonight, Alabama causes humanity to take a step backwards. Now, Alabama attempted to execute Smith once before in 2022, but that lethal injection method was called off because they couldn't find a suitable vein for an IV line. The day before the execution, the U.S. Supreme Court denied Smith's request for a stay. And this was actually, there was actually a dissent to this by Justice Sotomayor. She wrote that Alabama botched Smith's earlier attempt uh, at execution, and now they're using him as a guinea pig while not releasing all the details of the execution protocol, which prevented Smith's attorneys from examining the procedure and raising any potential legal issues with the process. Now, the worst case scenario for Smith's execution didn't occur. There were fears that uh, he might vomit into his mask, slowly choke to death, or that the process might not kill him, but leave him in some sort of a persistent vegetative state. And also, I should point out that Oklahoma and Mississippi have already adopted this procedure, and Nebraska, Louisiana, and Ohio are considering it now. Uh, Ken, what what do you think about uh, what Alabama did here? Maybe what Justice Sotomayor had to say. Uh, just in general, your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I you know only the only thing I know about this uh, uh, this nitrogen uh, gas method of execution is just what I've read in the news coverage in the last couple of weeks. It's, I didn't I'd never heard of it before that, and I'm, I've certainly never studied it. I mean, I think it is kind of inherent in the um, giving the death penalty that you know if people are going to be put to death there's always going to be um you know it's it's it wouldn't be a, a it, it's going to be a bad experience for the, the the person to have to go through all all of these methods i think you know it, it, the process of dying is is not going to be a fun process and i i think it probably to me says more about why we shouldn't have the death penalty than anything i know about whether this particular method would be more or less uh, inhumane than a a lethal injection or, or a firing squad or a guillotine. I, I feel really unequipped to kind of get into comparative methodology about how humane or inhumane these, these really, uh, these different methods are. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I had more to say about but that, but I, it's, it's, but I think, yeah. I think Justice Sotomayor's point was more of a, uh, uh, transparency procedural sort of thing saying that, well, maybe, 
nitrogen gas is is more humane, less humane. But if Alabama doesn't release detailed information on the process to Smith's attorneys before they execute him, there's no way for Smith's attorneys to even make that make that case adequately. And that to me doesn't seem to be a, a frivolous point or an unimportant point. No, I, I, I get that. But I guess to me, it's a, it's a it's a small point because I, I think that definitely itself is the, the big issue. Right. I, I, let me make an analogy, I guess. Like, uh, you know, I, I think if you flip this to an issue where the left and the right are on the opposite sides as from each other as they are on this issue. Um, but but it, but it, I think similar it raises similar questions. You know, you had that whole kerfuffle back when um, abortion was still being protected by the Supreme Court before the Dobbs case about regulations that restricted uh, what was sometimes called partial birth abortion, right? The, the, the dilation and extraction method. And, you know, I think, you know, when you had these legislatures that were trying to ban that method, um, you know, they, they were trying to convince courts, well, you know, we know we have to let women have abortion rights, but we just want to um, uh, ban this, you know, particularly uh, in, inhumane or, or, or morally offensive uh, uh, medical technique. And, you know, I, I always saw that as kind of just window dressing, really. It's just that they're looking for, you know, any any kind of way that they could ban any abortions whatsoever, um, you know, when they're working within a context where, um, you know, the, the court was protecting abortion. And and so kind of focusing on the kind of small board details of, of you know, is this one method worse than the other methods always just struck me as kind of gamesmanship. And and I, I kind of, you know, even though I sympathize with so, Sotomayor, I kind of think the same thing is going on here where, you know, she's against the death penalty as I am. But I, but I think she's, you know, just kind of, you know, seizing on uh, g- g- arguments that might sound plausible, but but that are just available at a methodology because she's looking for arguments that are, you know, really ways to slow down the death penalty. And, and I don't you know, I'm, I'm with her on that, but I don't uh, take it as seriously as that, I guess. I think it's, it's a I think it's more of a rhetorical uh, argument from someone who's you know doesn't yeah. want to see the death penalty. I I I agree. I guess to an extent, but I also think that one can be in favor of the death penalty, but also have a sincere belief that if the state is going to execute someone, it should be in the least uh, demeaning, least painful method possible. In fact, there was a uh, there was a, a case 2019. Uh, let's see, uh, Bucklew versus Persite, I think. Uh, and, and that uh, the, the court argues was that essentially a state uh, refusing to change how it uh, kill someone. In this case, it was about lethal injection. They, the, our, the court said, well, it can violate the Eighth Amendment if the person being executed can identify what the court said is a, a feasible, readily implemented alternative that would significantly reduce a substantial risk of severe pain. And to me, that's a uh, that's a fair and, and reasonable argument. And I think uh, the point here is if you're using this person as a guinea pig for a, an untested method, it's really difficult to i to be able to do that and maybe you say well the burden is on the inmate not on the state and so if you say well if we don't know what the method is you can't really make the case that there's something less painful but uh, i i don't know I, I feel like there are a lot of ways to put someone to death and some of them yeah. are uh, going to be much more or much less undignified and much uh, quicker and easier and more painless. And and those are the ones, if states are going to kill someone, those are the ones I think they should use. Well, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, one of the kind of strange paradoxes of of all this is, you know, the the lethal injections, um, you know, could be very uh, painless and and, uh, humane. um, But uh, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies don't actually want to sell that product to these states to, that are going to use it to execute people. So, um, you know, maybe the most maybe the most humane methods would be to you know give them a heroin overdose or something like that. You know that the these illegal narcotics that kill people actually make people feel good. You know, and uh, but but you know it's it's uh, it's it's hard to you know figure out how to equilibrate these things because they're not going to give them illegal narcotics if they want to give them lawful uh, uh, compounds that come from from pharmaceutical or chemical companies. They've got to find a pharmaceutical or chemical company that's willing to sell them that. And I think the very fact that, you know, most of the legitimate, um, you know, mainstream pharmaceutical and chemical companies don't want to be associated 
with the use of their products for executions. To me, that's an occasion for the country to rethink, you know, why are we doing these executions? And, uh, and I, you know, I am opposed to the death penalty, but I just, I just keep getting hung up on this idea that one of the reasons I'm opposed to it is because, you know, when people actually see it um, being used, you know, nobody likes that. And that's what we're really talking about here is that, you know, people, you know, people see, oh, that someone's actually getting killed. They're, they're going to, it's going to be, it's going to be painful. It's going to be ugly. They're going to vomit all over themselves. Um, and I, to me, the implication of that should be, you know, maybe don't kill them. That's, that's how I feel. And I think that's an argument that some people make for, well, the, the death penalty should be, we should see it for the sort of horrific thing that many people see it as being. And so some people say, let's, let's bring back uh, uh, the guillotine or, or like a captive bolt gun sort of thing like you use for, uh, uh, they use for uh, large animals, cattle, that sort of thing to get, get people a sense of this is a, this is a, a big deal. And it's not just like they quietly go to sleep never to wake up sort of thing. And I think there's, there's something to be said for that, though. I should point out that uh, the Supreme Court has said that actually the Eighth Amendment would prohibit uh, the guillotine. Uh, there's a case uh, you might be familiar with, Ken, uh, Bayes versus Reese. And the court said that the Eighth Amendment prohibits punishments of torture, anything unnecessarily cruel, including disemboweling, beheading, quartering, dissecting, and burning alive. Although I would argue that beheading is very different because that's probably one of the quickest and least painful ways to kill someone, but it looks awful and it shows, I think, the the the, the horribleness of killing someone. And for that reason, I think that's the story. If there's going to be a death penalty, I want to see something like that so people understand what's really going on so that's kind of my take but i'm 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 very much an anti-death penalty person uh even if not from an ethical standpoint from a sort of procedural standpoint given that there have been plenty of people who have been on death row and project things like the innocence project have found out that oh well they actually didn't do it well you can't come back from killing someone right right yeah it's interesting what you said about the guillotine that it kind of um it sort of externalizes the pain from the, 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 the person who's receiving the death penalty to the uh, audiences who have to look at it. And, and that might be a, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, certain, I certainly think so. But uh, I don't think, the death, I, I, could, uh, yeah, I don't think yeah. the death penalty is, is going anywhere. I mean, there are, I think, well, there are tw currently there are 27 states that have a death penalty. I should point out, though, in six of those states, the governor has put a moratorium on execution. And uh, certainly there's been uh, in some of the states that do perform executions, there's been an attempt to try to find a way to get around the many problems with uh, lethal injection protocols. And uh, this is obviously one of them. And like I said, in, in our state now, Ohio's looking into this uh, nitrogen gas uh, method. So there we go. All right. We have time for one more story and let's actually stick with the uh, judicial branch, uh, you know, can presidents come and go, but the judges they appoint, uh, they could remain on the bench for a long time. In fact, uh, listeners might not know this, but there are actually still a few judges from the uh, Reagan administration that are still, I think, 11 of them, Article Three judges that are still, still, I don't know if they're going strong, but they're still there. So the point being is that Judges last a long time. And, you know, most of the focus is on who presidents appointed the Supreme Court, but lower level appointments can have a pretty big effect because, of course, most of what happens in the federal judiciary doesn't involve the Supreme Court. And during the Trump presidency, Mitch McConnell made a point of pushing through as many judges as quickly as he could, and he did a pretty good job of it. 174 district court judges, 54 at the, the appellate level, and of course, those three Supreme Court appointments. And after a pretty quick start, it looks like the Democratic-controlled Senate won't be able to match that first-term pace, uh, hopefully there'll be a second Biden term. 174 of Biden's nominees have been confirmed to date. That's 133 at the district court level, 40 appeals court judge, and of course, his one Supreme Court uh, appointee. Now, there's no filibuster for judicial appointees, and Democrats have a majority in the chamber. So you might say, well, 
What's the holdup? Well, the holdup is something called the blue slip. And this is the practice in the Senate of allowing either of the two home state senators to essentially uh, veto judicial nominees in their state. Uh, at, at present, in fact, there are 32 states that have at least one Republican U.S. senator. And so in those cases, at least some Republican cooperation is necessary to confirm nominees are going to serve in those states. And some people said, well, why don't we just do away with this? Because it's just a tradition. It's not a rule or anything. And it's something, in fact, that Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin could basically do on his own. But he's been reluctant to do that because he wants to maintain that home state veto uh, tradition when his party isn't in power. And that's something that's uh, fairly likely to happen starting in January of next year. And one final thing I should point out is that there is no blue slip at the appellate court level because Senate Republicans ended that during the Trump presidency. And Democrats have continued with that when they took control of the chamber in uh, 2021. So. I guess, Ken, to me, the, the issue here really is the blue slip thing. W what do you think about this? Is this uh, a tradition that's time has passed? Does it serve a purpose? Uh, what's your view on this? Well, as you noted, it's already been eliminated at the appellate level, and, and it never existed at the Supreme Court level. So it, it's only left there for trial judges. Um, now, trial judges, you know, who they are, can be significant in certain cases. You know, we were getting a kind of case study in that uh, with the, the Jack Smith's two prosecutions, one in Judge Chutkin's courtroom in D.C. and the other in Judge Cannon's uh, courtroom in, in Florida. Um, and, you know, how differently those two judges are, are managing the, those cases, I think, really shows, you know, the significance of this. But, but it's also true on the other side that um, tr what trial judges don't have a role in doing is uh, shaping the law, right? They, they have a role in managing cases, but they don't have a role in shaping the law because under the system of precedent that works in the in the judiciary, only uh, appellate courts can make precedent. Uh, uh, trial judges can never make precedent. So they, they can make rulings in their own cases, but th those don't um, have impact on other judges or on, on the rest of the judiciary. Uh, so it, it has been, I think, a, a long and I would say good uh, tradition that the kind of people that you hope will become the federal trial judges are basically relatively non-political people who have been, you know, really star uh, litigators, right? That that's sort of the model you want is someone who's just, you know, had an excellent career litigating in the courts that they want to be a judge in and that are not perceived as being political or partisan or whatever, but just perceived as people who know, you know, how a trial works and, and can manage a, a trial. And so, you know, from that ideal, you know, certainly bipartisanship is better than partisanship, right? But the problem, as it always is in the current Congress, is, uh, you know, if the Republicans are in such bad faith that they're not, they're not sharing that view that, uh, you know, they're trying to find some good nonpartisan uh, skilled uh, uh, litigator who everybody in the legal profession in this area loves. They're not looking for someone like that. They're just simply looking to hold the seats empty so that they can give it to a partisan hack on their side. Um, I think that's the concern that people uh, very rightly have. And, you know, it's one that I would have said is clearly what's going on, you know, until, you know, Durbin himself recently, as, as you noted, announced that he is making some progress with the Republican senators about getting um, some blue slips returned and some, some trial judges, uh, uh, Democratic trial judges confirmed in Republican states. And, uh, I think if that process works, it's good to stick with it. Um, if there's a complete process breakdown, which it looked for a little while like there was, um, then uh, it, it's better to scrap it. And that's kind of how I would think about it. You know, it, I, I largely agree. I, I pretty much entirely uh, agree with that. And, you know, in, in thinking about this, I did a lot of digging into uh, the judicial article three judicial appointments by president and what what really struck me i i've already i i knew this but it really struck me looking at the numbers is how much of it it involves being president at at the right time i mean barack obama president for eight years he only had 49 appellate court appointees uh and you know donald trump in four years had 54 and it's such a it's such a strange thing i mean i mean we think about that most in terms of the supreme court but I would argue that it's pretty important at the appellate court level as well, given how light the Supreme Court's workload is. And most everything 
uh, if it's going to be appealed, it kind of ends at that level. And so having, like I would say, for instance, I'm, I'm glad almost on a reg, on a weekly basis that the DC circuit is majority Democrat president, president appointee, right? I imagine you would be as well. Yeah. And uh, well, with Obama also, you got to remember though, that he didn't uh, play hardball as much as he probably should have because the, the, you still did have a filibuster rule then. Yeah, that's true. Right? So, yep. so the, the, the Republicans, even when they didn't have the majority in the Senate, um, and during, you know, during the Obama years, uh, Obama started actually with a, a filibuster proof majority, 60 40, which he, he wasn't easily able to use because, you know, people forget this, but, um, there was a litigation about whether Al Franken got elected in, in, um, Minnesota. And so Franken didn't get to take his seat until almost a year after, uh, the term began. And then there was only about six months where you had that Democratic majority. And then Ted Kennedy died and in the special election was replaced by a Republican. So, so, you know, the, the true filibuster proof majority only lasted about six months, but, but, um, Obama did have a majority, but not a filibuster proof majority for a long time. And he let the Republicans filibuster his judicial nominees, and he he didn't um, break that filibuster rule, um, even though that's really my kind of prime example of what extreme bad faith uh, the Republicans were in, because they didn't have, it wasn't like they were saying, well, we don't like this nominee, but if you give us a different nominee that we like, then we would, we would give them a hearing. It was just they were basically not giving hearings to Democrats because they wanted to hold those seats open in their in their hope that they would eventually have a Republican president who could fill them. And and I think, you know, in that kind of situation, it's not a surprise that Obama couldn't get a lot of uh, uh, couldn't get a lot of people confirmed. But he really was, you know, facing a situation where the weaponization of the filibuster was fairly novel. And yet the filibuster rule had not been broken yet. And I think that's instructive for later Democratic presidents because, you know, they, they can see that that that, you know, when when these systems are being abused, they they need they do need to change the rules and o- Obama eventually was able to do that. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point about having to quickly adopt to uh, adapt to new strategies and and that's an era where uh, Barack, Barack Obama and Senate Democrats I think moved more slowly than than they should have to their to, to their and our detriment I, I would argue for for decades to come. Yeah, and with DC, of course, that was never subject to the blue slip rule because there's no senators from DC. So that's why he was able to, um, you know, the Dems have generally been able to have an easier time getting people on the DC circuit than on the uh, on the circuit courts in a lot of states. And I guess I should I should point out I just sort of assumed that I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this, but the DC circuit has a kind of a special importance in 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 a lot of ways. And and can you probably be better positioned to explain why that is the case? Yeah, well, most of the um, administrative agencies of the government um, not only are located in D.C., but the statutes that provide for appellate review of their decisions um, allow those those decisions to be appealed in D.C. In some cases, they only allow the decisions to be appealed in D.C. In other cases, it could be the um, plaintiff's uh, election. But if if more than one plaintiff appeals the same administrative ruling, um, then it, it would often be the case that those cases would get uh, assigned to D.C. Like if you've got a, an administrative agency that makes a rule and then different plaintiffs file suit to block the rule in D.C., but also in Cincinnati and in, you know, in, in, in New Orleans and wherever, um, you know, they'll, they, they might consolidate it in D.C. So it ends up being that a lot of the cases, a whole lot of the cases that are brought against the agencies of the United States government uh, get decided um, in the D.C. circuit. And so that gives it a really outsized significance when we have these controversies, uh, like we were just talking about controversies at the, at the border. Um, you know, border controversies possibly could be brought in the Fifth Circuit in Texas because that's where the action is taking place. But they they can also be brought in the D.C. Circuit because the um, the Homeland Security Department is in D.C. And so um, so that, I think, is what gives a special significance to the D.C. Circuit. It, it certainly is the second most important court other than the U.S. Supreme Court. All right. Well, on that note, it looks like we are kind of at that point. And so I just want to thank everyone for listening. If you're not already a supporter, 
I hope you'll consider becoming one. It helps us keep the show going. And of course, as a supporter, you get ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get that full-length midweek episode instead of just the preview. Access to our Politics Guys Discord group, which, by the way, in the last few weeks has just been, wow, all kinds of fun stuff going on there. Uh, really interesting stuff. And uh, you'll even have the opportunity to listen in and comment as we record the show. You can support us on Patreon, and there's a free trial there. And hey, if a monthly contribution, too much of a commitment, or maybe you're just not crazy about Patreon, uh, we have PayPal and Venmo support options, too. You'll find all those links in our show, in our, uh, show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get our full-length midweek show, but you're not in a position to financially support us right now, just send me an email. I'm Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that set up for you. And whether you support us or not, we hope that you'll subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast app, as well as share uh, stuff about the episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, there's good old fashioned email, mail at politicsguys.com. There's that Discord channel I already mentioned, as well as Facebook and X. And you'll find links to that in the show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thank Thanks, thanks. A very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers. They are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.